today we wrap up our series on suffering, though I don't think we'll ever really have a great answer for why it is that we suffer. We found a couple of interesting things in our journey so far. We looked at Ecclesiastes and how we are often the cause of our own suffering. We saw all of life is vanity, but we are still called by God, and it's to be more than just transformative with our lives. Uh, transformation could be good or bad for a person. Instead, we sublimate our pain, which means we harness pain and suffering so we can bring good into this world. That's the goal. Last week, we looked at this tough passage from Acts 4 and 5, where after Jesus, this uh, newly formed Christian community has all things in common. They sold land and homes so those who joined them would have their basic needs met. One couple, though, decided to sell their land, tell everyone they were giving to the church, and then lied about the price, only giving some of the money to the church leaders. They were struck dead by God for it. And we saw that hoarding like that is a sign of getting your priorities wrong. It's not getting more money that's most important. It's not you feeling good that matters. It's about working to end hunger and poverty and making this world a better place. That's what we do with the suffering we see. Today we take a different approach. Instead of looking at what we do because of our suffering, a question the Bible addresses very clearly, I want to walk you through different ways that we understand suffering itself. Where does it come from, and why does God have us go through it? Though there is very little we see directly about this question in Scripture, we are looking for it anyways because we want to know. This is a response to suffering. Now we're going to hear from Bill. He's going to share for us Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 26, and then we'll have one more verse from John uh, chapter 15. So hear now God's word. Okay. Uh, just a quick question, Pastor Brian. I have here Acts 9, 14, 26. It should Is be it Romans? Romans 9. Okay, yeah, I think good. I put the wrong that's book, what's so in I the program, that. so I'm glad <laughs> that I asked. Okay, right. my, my apologies. Uh, what then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomsoever he chooses. You will say to me then, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who indeed are you, a human being, to argue with God? Will what is molded say to the one who molds it, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one object for special use and another for ordinary use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured uh, with much patience the objects of wrath that are made uh, for destruction? And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? including us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. 
and, who, and her who has not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there, shall, there they shall be called children of the living God. And from John 15, 13, no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. I invite you to join me in our prayer of preparation. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. In December of 2006, the United States was deep in a war with Iraq. Over 26,000 service members had been injured in battle, some of which later died from their injuries. The number of dead... 2,662. It's an awful thing that so many lost their lives, but military doctors will tell you something else important about that number. It represents the fewest percentage of deaths from war injuries ever in the history of the United States. In the 1700s, during the Revolutionary War, soldiers faced bayonets and single-shot rifles, but the level of war wounded who would die was 42%. In World War II, soldiers faced grenades, bombs, shells, and machine guns, yet only 30% of the wounded died. In Vietnam and the Persian Gulf War, the number had dropped to 24%. Each war brought with it advances in technology and medicine, allowing for a steady decrease in deaths from combat wounds. World War I had anesthetics, World War II had blood transfusions and penicillin. By the Korean War, we had antibiotics. Each brought the level of deaths down in war. Since then, the U.S. has invested hundreds of millions of dollars in new possibilities to care for the wounded, such as freeze-dried plasma, gene therapy, and medications to stop lung injury. Few, if any of these solutions, have been realized, and no technology or medicine is responsible for what happened in the Iraq war. Deaths from wounds has decreased even further in that war to a mere 10%. How they did that is an intriguing story involving different levels of trauma care at different locations. The closest to battle called forward surgical teams would travel right behind the troops and could go from six Humvees to a fully functional 900-square-foot hospital tent with two operating tables in under 60 minutes. But the question many of us are left with is not how are they able to help so many of the wounded, but how can God let so many people not only be wounded and die, but be wounded in such awful, permanent way? Doctors operating on those wounded in war must decide in a moment whether to amputate a person's arms or legs. Some are left with hips and hands that are useless. Others have their faces mutilated. One soldier had such severe abdominal injuries, he was left unable to lift himself out of bed into a wheelchair. He will spend a lifetime in bed and dependent on others. So when we are faced with such suffering, we can't help but ask, why does God allow this? And it's not just about far-off soldiers. We all face our own pain and suffering, from illness 
to untimely death of loved ones, from job loss to divorce, suffering seems built into life itself. But why? Why does God let this happen? The Apostle Paul was writing about a different topic in Romans 9, but I find some very interesting parallels here. Here again, that first rhetorical question Paul asks in today's passage. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? And his answer is sure to surprise you. Paul's topic was about a question we don't ask as often as they did in his time. He was wrestling with the nature of Israel's election. Thousands of years before, God had called out Abraham, an Aramean from Chaldee, today Iraq. He had many sons who are eventually enslaved in Egypt. Moses leads them out of that country into the promised land that Abraham had once lived in hundreds of years before. Israel battles many battles over the the years to hold on to this promised land, this land we call today Israel. But when Jesus came along, a thousand years after Abraham, he said God wasn't calling just Abraham's children, known as Israelites, God was calling everyone. Decades later, Paul is trying to answer this question for the people. Is God for just Israel or for everyone? At that time, Christians were going so far as to convert people to Judaism so they could then become Christians. But Paul realizes this doesn't make any sense. Just because Jesus was Jewish doesn't mean you have to become a Jew to become a follower of Christ. He told people to just follow Christ. But he's still left with this question of Israel working hard to be close with God while the Gentiles, the non-Jews, just sort of stumble into it. It looks like God has rejected Israel and saved the Gentiles. It seems unfair. It seems like God is going back on his promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. How can that be? It's the same question we asked about suffering. It seems unfair. Why does God allow this? How can it be? The answer comes down to how you understand God at work in this world. Why does God allow this? How does it make sense that we endure so much suffering? I want to present three options of how we understand God's action in this world. Three ways we can make sense of both Paul's question of Israel and Gentiles and of our suffering. So here's here's the first one. So up here, the cause of suffering. Some people would describe God as all-powerful, as knowing everything, as literally controlling the universe and all the details of how it works. If someone dies, God did it. If money falls from the sky... God did it. If a parking spot opens up, God did it. You could talk about God's sovereignty, that God rules like a king and no one can challenge his authority in his decisions. People like this model because it reassures them that no matter how bad things get, God has a perfect plan and the bad things are just bumps along a journey toward perfection. People can find a few scriptures that support this view of things. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen says, Nothing is too hard for God. In Matthew 19, 26, Jesus says, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. 
Psalm 139 says, You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And finally, Job 42.2, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. These scriptures seem to say God's got it all under control. Nothing can happen without God allowing it. But if that's true, we run into all kinds of problems. If God controls everything, then God is literally behind every bad thing that happens. God kills. God makes people sick. God makes your heart ache with loss. Now, that doesn't stop some people from holding on to this way of thinking, but there are other options. Another way to understand suffering is that it's not God who is behind those evil things. It's the devil. 1 John 3.8 says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Last week we looked at a scripture from Acts 5 where Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? In John 8, 44, Jesus says to the Jews who are following him, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer. He is a liar and the father of lies. You could say that God is at war with Satan and our actions line us up more with one or the other. But if God is so powerful, why is Satan even allowed to do all these bad things? Either God is too weak to stop Satan or something else is going on. That's where a third option comes in. In this view, suffering doesn't happen because God makes it happen or because the devil overpowers God. Instead, Suffering is the result of randomness and chaos. Humans are created with free will, and then when our wills clash, we do harm to one another. We fight, we maim, and we kill. Disease is not the will of God. It is the result of biology and viruses constantly mutating to find a way to survive on this planet. And why does God not do anything about it? Is God powerless? against these forces? No, it's not about power. It's about the nature of God. God is love. And love only exists when there is freedom of choice. So God's mode of transforming us is by inspiring his creation, encouraging our well-being. God doesn't force you to do or not do anything. It's your choice. I was reading about a man who decided to have a, a surgery done on his hand. He had serious arthritis and could hardly move his fingers. It was a risky surgery, and the doctor told him there's a possibility the end result will be worse than how things are right now. And what do you know, when the doctor went in to operate, the strands of arthritis were so thick, the doctor described it as trying to pull scotch tape off of wallpaper. The man, after recovering, found that his hand was, in fact, much worse than before the surgery. He decided to sue the doctor for malpractice. Do you hear God's love in that situation? I don't. I hear a series of choices that ended up hurting people. 
pain and suffering flowing out of our freedom. So why doesn't God just stop us from hurting each other? Again, it's God's love. Love is the primary expression of who God is, and love demands freedom of choice. So if our suffering is bad and we want God to intervene, consider for a moment what you might actually be asking for. You might be saying, God, stop loving me. I would rather be turned into a robot that is forced into obeying every command of God. Or you might be asking for war between Satan and God, with Satan being able to overpower God at times. Neither of these seem to me like uh, a good alternative. I'd rather have love, God's never-ending, ceaseless love over an end to my suffering. And we see someone else in the scriptures choosing this. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he is executed. He seems to know exactly what is coming. Jesus prays, almost pleading with God, if there is some other way, God, if you can take this suffering on the cross away, do it. But not my will, your will be done. He knows he's going to die. He doesn't run, though. He doesn't try to get out of it. He chooses suffering and death as a means to bless the world. As Jesus says in John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus lays down his life. He suffers and dies so that you and me and everyone we meet can know that God loves us. No matter how much we suffer, no matter how awful things might get, no matter what you're going through or what you've done or what you believe, God loves you. We actually see the same idea at the end of Romans 9. After Paul finishes with saying God can do whatever he likes because he is the master, he tells us what God actually does. God doesn't just call Jews to be his people. God calls all people my people and all people beloved. God calls all of us to be his children. Instead of being limited in who God shows love for, God goes in the complete opposite direction. It is all-encompassing. Everyone is welcomed into the kingdom. Just this past year, a, a young man walked into his high school with a shotgun. We don't know much about the circumstances of this young man and what it is that led him to want to shoot students and teachers at Park Rose High School in Oregon. But there is something we do know. We know that the school's football coach happened to be called to the same room minutes before that young man walked in with a gun. When the coach walked into the room, it was not, he was not more than three feet away from this young man. The coach, Keenan Lowe, made a split-second decision and grabbed the gun from the student. To save lives is all well and good, but what happened next, to me, is the good news of Christ. Keenan is a Christian, and instead of manhandling the student until police arrived, 
He shared God's love. He gave the student a huge hug. And as the student broke down in tears, Keenan told him there was a reason that they were both there. As students fled and another teacher removed the gun from the room, Keenan said he was there to save this young man. And that whatever he was going through, that life was worth living. God was there in that moment. God was working through Keenan. No one died that day. No one was shot. Because one man was prepared for the moment and was filled with God's love in a dire situation. So if your pain is bad and you are wondering why God won't bring it to an end, consider this. Maybe your pain is a reminder that you are called to be an instrument of God's love. In any time, in any place, and in any situation. Suffering very well may simply be part of life, and it's up to us to make sure people don't just suffer, but that they know God's love is never-ending. Amen? Amen. Amen.